How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our ever-present help in time of trouble, that you are our shield and our fortress, and that you are the source of all stability in our life. Father, we continue to pray for Ulan and Kyrgyzstan. We pray that you would surround him with your protection and be a shield and a fortress to him, and in the midst of this persecution that they might stand firm and steadfast and that they might be a solid source of uh, testimony to your grace and to the gospel. Father, we pray for this prophecy conference coming up. We pray that things will go well, that you'll keep uh, the speakers safe in their travels, and that this would be a time where people are challenged with the, uh, what the Bible says about prophecy, what the Bible says about Israel, and the importance of a, a national support for Israel. Now, Father, as we come to study your word this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study that are so important that we can have a greater appreciation for our own salvation and all that you have accomplished for us. And we pray that we'd be challenged by the things we study. In Christ's name, amen. We're in Genesis 15 now. Genesis chapter 15 at one of the two crucial chapters for understanding the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we won't get into the section on the Abrahamic covenant uh, this evening, but we will get into it quite a bit in my morning uh, talk on Saturday, laying the foundation for why Israel has a future. But it is in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 that the Abrahamic covenant is laid out. Now, when I started this section on Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, I said that if we are going to properly interpret and understand Abraham, we have to do so in light of how Abraham is interpreted in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us how to understand the Old. Not that it reinterprets the Old, but that it fully develops what is being said in the Old Testament. So that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things happened as an example. The Greek word there is tupos, an example, a type for us. So it is, a, it is to picture things. And I believe the right way to use the Old Testament when we're teaching in the New Testament is that these events don't just happen as, they're not just told to us because they're interesting stories or because they uh, speak to the human experience or because somehow they represent all mankind. I think that's a lot of garbage. What these episodes are revealed to us and recorded in the Scripture for us by the Holy Spirit because they teach us key principles 
about God, about man, and about how God is working in human history. That pretty much sums up the whole thing. When we look at how Abraham is used in the New Testament, if I can get over to the right show here, I pointed out six things. First of all, Abraham is used in the New Testament as a picture of justification by faith alone. A picture of justification by faith alone in terms of phase one salvation. We always tend to talk to people about their salvation. Are you saved? And the reality is that the Bible talks about salvation in three senses. That instantaneous moment when a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone is when they are justified. So that is justification, salvation, phase one. The second way in which the Bible uses the word saved, and I become more and more convinced in my studies that it is a predominant way, and that is the working out of our salvation in terms of phase two, working out the implication. So it's not being saved from the penalty of sin, phase one. It's being saved from the power of sin, phase two. And that is uh, also how uh, Abraham is used. Now, justification by faith is in terms of his uh, initial Phase 1 salvation is in Romans 4, 1 through 8. But there's another passage that references justification by faith in Abraham, and that's in James 2, 21. And that's in reference to his passing the test of the sacrifice with Isaac. And that is a picture of his justification before men. There are two kinds of justifications in that passage. And uh, this is justification before men, indicating his spiritual maturity. A third way in which Abraham is used in the New Testament is with reference to spiritual growth. This is found in Hebrews 11:8 through 19, that he grows by means of faith, that is, trusting in the revealed Word of God. And so that is the process of going from phase one salvation to spiritual maturity. It's by means of testing. And that's what we're seeing in as we go through episode by episode, chapter by chapter in the life of Abraham, we see that each of these events surrounds some sort of test related to Abraham's spiritual life. Fourth, Abraham is a picture of election, and this is what undergirds Romans 9 through 11, and I will do just a very brief overview of Romans 11, uh, beginning Saturday afternoon and concluding on Sunday evening as my part of the prophecy conference. But it is God's selection of Abraham in contrast to the rest of the human race that now he is going to work through Abraham uh, and not through all of humanity. He chooses Abraham and his descendants. And that, of course, is based on the Abrahamic covenant which God makes and which is spelled out in detail here in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. And then, of course, this is the foundation for missionary activity, foundation for missionary activity and evangelism, Because Abraham, and through Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed. 
And that ultimately comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there, these six elements really undergird everything in Abraham's life from Genesis chapter 12 down through 23. The first one that I mentioned is justification by faith is what we get into in tonight's passage. This is the foundational Old Testament passage to understand justification by faith alone. Now, you may be sitting out there tonight thinking, golly, I know justification by faith. I understand this. I've heard the gospel for years. Well, let me tell you, there's a lot of people who think that and don't have a clue today. This is one of the least taught doctrines and most misunderstood doctrines. In fact, I was uh, recently reading a report on a major doctrinal controversy that's taken place in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church over this very subject, and the writer points out that seminary professors at their seminaries sign a doctrinal statement affirming that they believe in justification by faith alone, but in fact what they're doing is they're backloading the gospel with works because the way they're defining faith isn't simply trusting in Christ, but is an active faith that includes works that are consistent with true belief. And so you see they're defining faith by bringing works into that definition. That's the same thing that goes on in lordship salvation. And it's why it's so important to define terms. And people today don't understand uh, classic biblical terminology anymore. And it's a, it's a real tragedy. And, you know, in, a, in a generation uh, or two ago, people understood those things. If you go back to the Protestant Reformation, people understood that if you don't understand these things, it's not only a matter of eternal life and death, it's a matter of temporal life and death. Because they were called upon to make, a, make an affirmation of what they believed in relation to justification by faith. And if you took a Roman Catholic position as opposed to a Protestant position, you could end up being burned at the stake or vice versa. And the average person on the street understood the fine point distinctions between these theological systems. And what happens today is you get up in the pulpit and people just... just uh, uh, gloss over these differences because, well, we don't want to offend anybody and we don't want to get anybody upset and we don't want to um, get too detailed in theology because that just goes over everybody's head. And this is what's happening. So people in the pew end up being basically ignorant. And the next thing that happens is they start swallowing falsehoods and their their understanding of justification begins to become skewed, and then their understanding of salvation becomes skewed, and then it dominoes into their spiritual life, which is exactly where we find ourselves today. And so it's very important to go back and understand uh, these issues historically as they're developed in the, in the Scripture. The foundational verse for Genesis 15 is quoted in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, quoted in uh, Galatians, quoting James. And he that is Abram believed in the Lord, and he that is the Lord accounted it or imputed it or reckoned it to him for righteousness. That is the foundational verse for understanding 
imputation, which is clearly a word that's used there, but imputation is foundational to understanding uh, justification. So this becomes the foundation. So we have to look at this in context. Now, this chapter can be subdivided into two parallel sections, two parallel sections that are separated by 15.6, which is a parenthetical verse uh, between the two sections. And the reason it's stuck in there is because it lays the foundation for both sections. I mean, there's a parallelism, which I'll show you in a minute, between verses 1 through 5 and then verses uh, 7 through 21. And they, they both involve dialogue. If you read through there, you'll notice that it starts off, verse 15, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Okay, who's speaking? God speaking. But Abram said, Okay, it's a dialogue. Abram is talking. Then Abram said in verse 3, and then verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So who's speaking now? God is speaking. And so we have a dialogue. And then God brings Abram outside and speaks again in verse 5. And then you have verse 6. Then it starts over again. God makes a proclamation of his reliability and his promise to Abram in verse 7. And then uh, Abram questions God, how am I going to inherit it? And so we go through this particular pattern. So what we see in verses 1 through 5 is God's declaration of his promises to Abraham. God's declaration of his promises to Abram. He promises Abram that he will have an heir that comes from his own body, that will be a physically related descendant. It's not going to be through some other means. He declares that promise to God. We'll skip verse 6 for a moment. And then in verses 7 through 21, God institutes a unilateral. That means it's only one person involved in committing himself, not Abram. God invokes a unilateral covenant institutes a unilateral covenant. That's a synonym for unconditional covenant with Abram to guarantee those promises. So it's not just a matter of God speaking these momentous promises to Abram that he's going to have a descendant that's going to be physically related to him and come from his own loins, but God is going to bind himself to this legal contract in order to give weight to this promise, because in the future there are going to be numerous assaults on Abram's descendants, as we see today, the Jews constantly under assault, and the core provision in that Abrahamic promise relates to the land. And so God binds himself in this way in order to give weight to, to his promise and that this is a, a unilateral, unconditional grace gift to Abraham. Now let's look at the structure a little bit. Structure is always important just to help us understand how things are laid out. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, we begin with God declaring his protection and reward. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham, and God says, I am your shield." And your exceeding great reward. What he is saying is, I protect you, and I'm going to provide for you. I am your protection. 
And then in verse 2, Abram responds, and we show what's bothering him. The, the promise of protection and provision is preceded by the command, do not be afraid, and apparently Abram is fearful of something, and it's the fact that he doesn't have a child yet. So he questions God about that. In verse 2 and 3, he expresses that concern and comes up with his own solution to the problem. How typical of all of us. And then in verse 4 and 5, God reiterates the promise that Abram's son, Abram's heir will be his own son and his descendants would be like the stars. Then we have the foundation in verse 6 that Abram believed God. But what we see in verse 6 is a disjunctive thought. Now what that means in grammatical terms is the, the writer brings something in from left field. He's not, in Hebrew it's, it's typical grammatically when you're telling a story, and this is why you see things translated this way, and they went, and they did, and they saw, and they, you see this and, 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 and what you have in Hebrew construction is you begin the sentence with a conjunction and to show the flow of the narrative. It's, it's very clear that, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, that Mark may be writing Greek, but he's thinking in Hebrew. And you read through Mark, and he did this, and then Jesus did that, and then he went over here and immediately he did this. And after you finish the first chapter, you're panting. It's just like a run through the life of Christ. And because when we translate it into English, it's not necessary to put the ands in there to communicate the flow of the narrative. But that was the way that, that it, the Hebrew mind worked. But when you want to break the action, you, instead of following the typical conjunction, verb, noun pattern, you break it by going conjunction, noun, verb. And that's called a disjunction. It's the same thing that you have at Genesis 1, verse 2. Then the earth, or but the earth, was without form or void. It brings in a totally new thought, and it's not flowing out of the previous thoughts. Now, why is that important? It's important because when it states in verse 6 that Abram believed in the Lord, what he's believing is not the promise given in verses 1 through 5. It's not related to that at all. It is a parenthetical statement. And we'll get into the exegesis of it, but what it means is, now... Remember, Abraham had already believed God and it had been accounted to him as righteousness. It is a reminder of the basis for the blessing. It's the basis for the promise. See, God isn't blessing Abraham with a child and then Abraham believes him, but Abraham has already trusted God. He's received imputed righteousness and it's on the basis of that imputed righteousness that God graciously blesses him with the Abrahamic covenant. And so verse 6 hangs in here like a hinge, and the first five verses and the next verses are all built on this foundation that Abraham had already trusted God, indicating his salvation, which occurred before Genesis chapter 12, had already believed God, and he had already been imputed uh, the righteousness of God. Verse 7, we get into the next section. God reiterates a promise, just as he did in verse 1, where he said, I am your shield, and your reward will be great. Now he says, 
I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to inherit it. He's again reiterating a promise. In the first five verses, the focus was on the seed. And in verse 7, it shifts to the land to inherit it. Now, once again, that brings in this whole... So isn't it interesting how our study in Hebrews, our study in Revelation on Sunday night, and study in Genesis are all landing on inheritance right now. I just love it when the Holy Spirit brings a plan together. You give you this land to inherit it, to possess it. Incidentally, this is such a real promise that even though Abraham never owned any land other than the grave at, at, the, at the cave at Machpelah where he and Sarah were buried, even though he never had any land, this promise is so foundational and so real, so literal, that Jesus uses it to, to ground his argument for resurrection. Think about it. That's very sophisticated. Jesus grounds his argument for the reality of resurrection on this promise. God said Abraham would possess the land. He never possessed it then. Therefore, there must be a resurrection so he can come back and actually possess it in the future. This is one reason we know that there is a future for Israel in the land. Jesus clearly said that Abraham would Come back to possess it in order to fulfill the promise of God. So verse 7, God restates his promise and grounds it in himself. I am the one who delivered you. God doesn't have anything greater than himself on which he can base a promise. But Abram, like most of us in verse 8, wants a little confirmation. He says, how will I know that I will possess it? And so in verse, uh, starting in verse Uh, Nine, God instructs Abraham to prepare a sacrifice. And he brings the sacrifice, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, I mean a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brings them, and then it just sort of uh, very lightly touches on what happens here. But he has to kill each of these animals, take out the sacrificial knife, cut their throat, Then he butchers them and splits them in two, uh, except for the birds. And so this is an extremely bloody scene. Any of you have been out hunting and uh, killed a deer or anything else and gone through the butchering process, you have some idea what this is all about. Today we're so divorced from the farm that we don't catch the, the drama that is taking place here and the labor that is involved in and killing these animals and all of the blood and the mess and the smell and everything that goes along with it. And so Abraham then splits these animals, lays them out side by side with a walkway, with a path in the middle, which was a standard operating procedure in the ancient world for uh, uh, two people who were going to, and literally the Hebrew says, cut a covenant. If you were going to enter into a contract, this is what you did. Can you imagine doing this every time that you uh, signed a mortgage agreement, every time you bought a piece of property, every time you uh, signed a contract for a credit card, you had to go out and take an animal and kill it and cut it in half. And, and it's a, but this is what they did to indicate the seriousness, the solemnity of a covenantal agreement. This isn't just uh, some light hearted agreement that a person can go back on. It is to stress 
the seriousness of this because it is sealed with the lives of these animals. And then vultures come down on the carcasses. This is a picture of the fact that the Abrahamic covenant will be attacked down through the generations. Verse 12, the sun goes down. Abraham falls into a deep sleep and an oppressive darkness surrounds him. And this, again, is a picture of the oppression that the Jews will go through in the future. And then God interprets this. See, see, I'm not just making these things up. I'm not just assigning arbitrarily a symbolic value to the uh, unclean animals that are attacking. That's what the vultures are. They're unclean animals. The vultures that are attacking the carcasses are the deep darkness. God interprets this in verse 13. He said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's a prediction of the slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Now notice how literal this prophecy is. Here's the principle. We'll get into this this weekend in the conference. If God's promise to Abraham about the literalness of the 400-year oppression between, his, uh, between uh, Joseph and Moses, then why do, we not, then why do some people want to uh, allegorize the promises about the land when it comes to the present return of the Jews to the land? Why do some people come along and take this literally, but then they would say that, uh, the, the, the Jews no longer have an inheritance in the land. They lost that when Jesus came, and that the land now represents heaven. See, it's a shift in your hermeneutic. You're, you're shifting from a literal understanding in the Old Testament to a figurative, symbolic, or allegorical understanding in the uh, Old Testament. And I developed a doctrine that goes along with this, that you, emphasizing the consistency of your interpretation, and I call it the doctrine of you got to dance with the one who brung you. First time I did that in Connecticut, they all looked at me like I'd lost my mind. It's consistency. If you're going to interpret this literally, a literal 400-year gap between uh, Joseph and Moses, then why don't you interpret all of the return passages and prophecies in a literal fashion? So if this is literal future, even more future uh, returns to the land should be taken literally as well. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. They're going to leave Egypt and they're going to spoil the Egyptians. This is exactly what happened. But in the fourth generation they shall return, uh, return here. So it's a uh, prophecy of the length of time, again, related to the 400 years that they would be in, in Egypt. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, then behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch. And so... Uh, Abraham spoke. He wanted uh, assurance. Then God answered him and gave the promise. And then there is the uh, finalization of the ceremony. It came to pass when the sun went down. You have these, uh, uh, it's dark now, and you have a smoking oven and a burning torch. It's fire. It's a picture of purification in the Scripture. It's a picture of the holiness of God. And these two symbols of God in his integrity pass through the animals alone. Abraham does it. If it had been a covenant between two humans, they would walk next to each other between the animals, indicating that they both bound themselves to the contract. But 
Abraham can't do it because he's sound asleep. God alone passes through between the animals using symbols that, that, that emphasize his integrity, that he is true to his word and will not go back on his word. And so then he concludes by saying, to your descendants I have given this land. So the covenant here emphasizes the land. The borders are given from the river of Egypt. This is on the uh, north uh, eastern border of Egypt. The, most scholars agree it's the Wadi El Koresh to the great river, the river Euphrates. This takes in all of modern Israel, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, much of uh, Syria, parts of Iraq. And all of this will be is the land that God originally promised to Abraham. And they never owned all the land. Even at its greatest extent under Solomon, the Jews never controlled all of that land. Which means that for God to be true to his word, there must be a future return of the Jews to the land, and at which time they will fully control that. Of course, that happens at the second coming when they return as a regenerate people and the kingdom is established under the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of that land is theirs, at the center of which will be the Millennial Temple. Now, this gives you a complete overview of chapter 15, so let's go back to the beginning and look at what's taking place. First verse, after these things. After what things? This initial phrase ties the events of chapter 15 Excuse me, the events of chapter 15 to the events of chapter 14. There's a close connection here. It's not disconnected. After these things, after Abraham has gone to battle against the uh, four kings under the Keterle-Omer alliance, the ancient axis of evil, and after he has gone to war against them and defeated them, now he's having second thoughts. See, this is so typical. We all run into this in our own Christian life, our own Christian experience. Things get going well, and we have certain victories, and things are super, and we are just excited about everything that's going on in our life. And then the next thing that happens is we go through some testing. We go through some challenging Things may happen that are completely different from what we expected, and it's very easy for us to give in to fear and to worry and to anxiety and to think that somehow the circumstances are going to be too great for God to handle. And so God calls us right back to doctrine. And this is what God says to Abram. After these things... The word of Yahweh, emphasizing that covenant nature of God, came to Abram in a vision. A vision is uh, different from a dream. You're awake when you have a vision. It's like looking into another dimension. Uh, It's like watching a movie screen and there's no movie screen there. Uh, You're wide awake at the time. And he says, do not be afraid. Now, why would Abram be afraid? Abram would be afraid for a number of reasons. First of all, he might be fearful because he didn't kill Keterleomer and Amraphel and Tidal and the other king. He didn't kill them, so they might put their alliance back together. They might uh, gather their troops together and come back 
seeking revenge. It's possible that in such a military action, Abram could lose his life and die childless before he's ever had a son, uh, an heir to his possessions and one who would fulfill the promise of God. So God's the one who promised him an heir. And now he's thinking, oh, something could happen that would keep God's promise from coming to pass. Nothing can ever break the promise of God. If God promises something, He will fulfill it. What happens usually is we get all involved in the process thinking we have to hurry it up or we have to do it a certain way. We have preconceived notions of how God's plan will work itself out in our lives. We have preconceived notions of what success might be in the Christian life. We have preconceived notions of how God's going to fulfill His promises. And then when it doesn't look like God's going to do it that way, we get involved and we try to make it happen that way just to protect God and to get what things done the way we want them to. And, and we're going to see this happens with Abraham a couple of times, and, and we're not any different. And God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your, and in the New King James it says, your exceedingly great reward. That is a poor translation because that implies that God is saying, I am your reward. And it's not saying that at all. What is being says, I am your shield and your reward shall be great. So get that down for a corrected translation. I am your shield, and your reward shall be great. Now when he uses, says the word shield, he uses the Hebrew noun magen, M-A-G-E-N, magen. Now this is just another literary clue showing the tight connection between what's happening here and what happened in the previous episode with Keterleomer. Because if you go back to Genesis 14.20, when Melchizedek is blessing Abraham, Melchizedek says, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And there he uses the cognate verb for magan was the, or magen was the noun for shield, and the pl of magan is the meaning deliver. So he uses the, the, uh, the verb back in 1420 and uses the noun form here, and this ties these two episodes together. That just as God delivered and protected and functioned as a shield to Abraham in the battle against the uh, four kings, so God is going to be the ever-present shield and source of strength to Abraham. He's going, as David would say in the Psalms, he is his shield, he is his fortress, he is his buckler. David uses any number of metaphors to describe the protection that God provides for us in this life. And in the Christian life, that protection comes through in what I develop as the soul fortress. It's through the utilization of doctrine that we strengthen and protect the soul from the assaults of adversity. 
When we cave into the sin nature, what happens is it converts that outside pressure of adversity into the internal pressure of stress in the soul, which is a sin nature control. And once we get involved in carnality and giving into one sin or another, it, they feed off of each other. And the solution is to come back to the Word and to the promise of God that He is our shield. You shall have a great reward. And that's true for us. If we rest in God's promise, then there will be great reward for us at the judgment seat of Christ. But what happens is we say, yes, Lord, but... We always have to watch out as soon as we say, but. And that's what Abraham is doing in verse 2. He's thinking of uh, the child as a reward, and he's thinking about Psalm 127.3, or that same idea. And Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage or an inheritance from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, is a reward. Now, that may be a verse that's new to some of you, but that shows the divine viewpoint on having children. You know, it runs completely contrary to the modern notion of just having 1.5 children. I always want to see what that 0.5 looks like, but the biblical viewpoint is that blessed is the man who has children whose quiver is full of them. It's a picture of a, of a soldier who is sending out numerous arrows against the enemy. And so the picture in Scripture is the more children you have that you uh, inculcate with Bible doctrine, you send your influence out into the world, and the more children you have, the more influence there is against the human viewpoint in the world. This isn't the mentality of population control. This is the mentality of, of uh, taking over uh, a culture by, by raising children who are imbued with Bible doctrine. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a very positive thing. Our culture tends to look on children as brats until they get to a certain age and then we farm them out. Verse 2, but Abram said, now notice, he's got a better idea. Lord, Let's see how we're going to work this out. See, this is what we do. We want to solve God's problems. And so Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I'm childless? He hasn't gotten the picture yet that God can bring life into the dead womb of Sarah and into his own sexual inability. Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, Eliezer of Damascus was probably a slave that he picked up on his migration down from Haran as he went through Damascus, and Eliezer was the chief steward or administrator in his household. And the standard operating uh, procedure in the ancient world was that if a man died childless, then his inheritance, his possessions, went to his chief steward. So this was a culturally accepted way of passing on the inheritance. But notice, it's not God's way. And see, this is something that we always have to be aware of, and there's a principle here, and that is there may be many moral and culturally acceptable ways to solve problems in our life, but they are not God's divine viewpoint ways to solve the problems in our life. 
And just because it's culturally acceptable and just because there's no laws against it and it's not immoral doesn't mean it's divine viewpoint and it's okay. We have to search out the scriptures to determine how we should solve certain problems in our life so that we can handle them not in the power of the flesh, but in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Now there's an interesting wordplay here. Eliezer of Damascus, the word for Damascus in the Hebrew is Damasek, and the word for air is Ben Mesek. So the Holy Spirit loves these little paranomasias to bring out certain emphases in the text. And that's how he does that. He didn't have bold-faced type back then, so he used these kinds of paranomasias to put the emphasis here that uh, Abram is focusing on Eliezer as his heir. This is the guy, Lord. This is the solution to the problem. I know how to solve it. It's real simple. Sarah's getting too old. I'm too old, but I've got the perfect solution. See, this is how we often rationalize the choices in our life, is we're going to convince God that there's a better way and we came up with a solution. But what God is saying is, wait a minute, you need to take into account that we want to make sure that I'm the one behind it and that you're not doing it in your own uh, power and your own, of, of your own flesh. Verse 3, Then Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. He's just explaining the principle there. So verses 2 and verse 3 indicate Abram's human viewpoint solution to the problem. This is his first human viewpoint solution to the problem. He'll have a, another little more interesting one later on when uh, our Sarah comes up with it, when she wants him to have a child through uh, Hagar. This one is, doesn't have quite the consequences that the later one does. But God responds to him in verse 4, And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. It's emphatic in the Hebrew. God says, No, forget your solution. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. He's emphasizing this natural descendancy from Abram. And then he says in verse 5, Then he brought him outside. So God leads Abram outside the tent, brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. Here's Abram. He is sexually dead at this point, can't have children. Sarah's too old to have children. And God is saying, this is how it's going to be. It's not just that you're going to find some second class solution in a servant in your household, you're not only going to have a son that's the son of promise, but your descendants are going to be more numerable than the stars. And this is a foundation. So this focuses on what part of the Abrahamic covenant? The seed. Remember, there's three parts to the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. And this is the seed aspect, the descendant aspect. And so we have a, a, a clear statement from God that you're going to have innumerable descendants. Then just take verse 6 out of it for a minute. Then he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. So God in the conversation immediately reminds Abram of who he is and what he has done. See, God is the God of history. 
He wants us to be aware of how God has historically acted in our lives. Can you think back in your life to see ways that God has answered prayer, to see ways that God has worked circumstances that you didn't think could be worked out? These are the things that we need to rely on. If God was strong enough to solve that problem that I faced ten years ago, why am I cratering with this problem now? See, we need to have a his, historical understanding of God's work in our life. It's not just in terms of, of uh, I mean, history, in terms of na- national history, but in terms of our own personal relationship with God. So God reminds Abram. He doesn't say, look at, look at uh, the creation and everything that I've done there. He doesn't focus on all these other things. He says, just remember what I did in bringing you from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran, down to, uh, down to the Promised Land, and then I got you out of the jam you got yourself into down in Egypt and brought you back here and I gave you victory. He's saying, think about all the things that have gone on in the last few verses. This is who I am. Why do you think that giving you this land and having a child from your own body is such a hard thing to do? We forget who God is. We have a small view of God, and we think that somehow God is too big, or too small, rather, for our problems, that He is too distant to be concerned about the things that are getting us all wrapped around the axle. But God is the one who is intimately involved in our lives. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13, There has no testing taken you, but such as is common to man, But God is faithful and will not test you above your ability, but will with the test make a way to escape, that's not to avoid it, that you may bear it. In other words, God provides the solution to every test, and that solution is found in the ten problem-solving devices, learning to trust God, claiming those promises and principles that God has provided for us in His Word. Now, let's go to verse 6. This is the foundation for all of God's work in our life. God doesn't work in your life and my life because we are such wonderful people. Because God looks down and says, you know, it really all came together in in you. You know, I just, you know, some people, it just didn't quite work. But you, you're something special, so so we're just going to make it all work for you. God doesn't bless you because of who you are, because of who I am. He doesn't ever operate on the basis of who and what we are. This is what is the radical contrast in in the Abrahamic covenant right now. Just hold your place there and turn back about two pages to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 2, which is a foreshadowing, the initial promise, introductory promise that is later developed into the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 2, God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. What's the significance of that? Well, you have to understand the significance of that. You have to go back to the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, all the Gentiles got together and said, we're going to build a tower and make a name for ourselves. This is the contrast. The mindset of the unbeliever is that he is going to make himself great, excluding God from the picture, and he's going to operate on the basis of works. 
It's his own achievement. It's his own ability. It's his own talent. It's his own innate goodness. In contrast to that, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant that is given totally on the basis of grace. Works are completely excluded. It's not founded on who Abraham is or what Abraham has done. It is grounded on something that goes far beyond anything that any of us can do, and that's the possession of perfect righteousness. And this is the basis for understanding all divine blessing in our life and how divine blessing operates. In Genesis 15:6, we read, And he believed in the Lord. And the word translated believe is the Hebrew word aman. That's the verb, aman. A noun form is amen. You've heard that, usually uh, anglicized to amen. But that's where we get it. And the root meaning of this word group is, in fact, it's used in one place in, in Chronicles to refer to the, to the foundation stone that was set on which the columns in the temple rested. So it refers to something that provides stability, dependability, something that is unshakable, something that is foundational. And so it came to mean something in the Hiphil stem, which is the causative stem, to be firm, to be trustworthy, to be safe. It is comes to mean belief, indicating that we are trusting and relying on something that is firm, unshakable, and dependable. Something that's firm, unshakable, and dependable. So when we say... You know, in the Old Testament they did this. They would respond to a statement about God and they would say, Amen. So when people do it today, it's not, not biblical. It's just become superficial. In the Old Testament, they were making an affirmation that that is a true and dependable statement on which we can ground our lives. Now we just, people just say amen because they like what somebody said or they agree with it. But that's not, that, that, that has trivialized the meaning of the word. And here we see that Abraham had, and it's in the perfect tense, the cow, or excuse me, it's in the um, Hiphil perfect in the Hebrew. And the perfect tense in Hebrew indicates Completed action. Now it can be simple past or it can have the emphasis of something that is taken place already and completed in past time. And that's how it should be translated here. It should be translated, Abram had already believed in the Lord. It's indicating completed action in that uh, perfective sense. That he had already believed in the Lord and then we read the next statement that he uh, accounted it or imputed it to him for righteousness. And that is the Hebrew word for uh, imputation of righteousness. Now, we'll wait until next time. I don't want to get into when we have four minutes left. I'm not going to get into the doctrine of imputation because we'll be here another 30 minutes to make sure we have context. But this is what it's grounded on is this statement in Hebrew, I mean Genesis 15:6, that Abram believed God. And so what happens is at the instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to us 
the righteousness of Christ. And that perfect righteousness, then, is the basis for all blessing. It is not our own righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we generated on our own. It is a righteousness that comes from the outside. And this is where the battle lines are drawn. This is where the confusion has has been for centuries in Christianity. This was the problem with the old and the new Roman Catholic Church, the pre-Reformation Catholic churches, is that they thought that to be justified there had to be an internal uh, righteousness that is produced on, on one's own effort or by one's own effort, and then God would uh, justify you. So it confuses justification with sanctification. It's not restricted to the Roman Catholic uh, doctrines of salvation. You find it in the holiness churches that have dominated in the last 200 years in Methodism and the Pentecostal holiness churches because everybody's so concerned that if you just make salvation a free gift, that people are going to say, yeah, I accept the gift, I'm going to live like the devil. And so in order to keep people in line morally, there's this threat that if you didn't have the right kind of faith, then you're not really justified and it makes... Regeneration, this is where it gets into heavy theology, but it's most important. It makes regeneration precede faith. And that's why there's that big debate with Calvinists on whether or not regeneration precedes faith. If regeneration precedes faith, then regeneration precedes justification. And if regeneration precedes justification, that means you get a new life and the sin nature gets somehow ameliorated or softened or weakened. And so there's this internal change of morality, and then you're justified. But what the Bible says is first you're justified, and then you're regenerate logically. Not chronologically, but logically. You have to receive that perfect righteousness of Christ. Then you regenerate and you draw a distinction between justification and sanctification. Well, that's just a preview of coming attractions. These were things that were clearly understood at the time of the Reformation that men and women uh, gave their lives for in the Protestant Reformation in order that we can have a Bible that we can read, uh, Sola Scriptura, so that we could understand grace instead of works, and that was the second uh, slogan of the Reformation, sola gratia. And then the uh, third slogan of the Reformation was sola fide, by faith alone. And that's the basis for justification, is faith alone in Christ alone, and it precedes everything else. We'll come back and get into that next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by your faithfulness, your protection for us, your provision for us, that you indeed are our shield and our buckler. You are our fortress. You are the one who surrounds us and protects us. You are the one who provides for our every need, and that you are the one that should be the, at the focal point of our concentration at all times. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. Thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.